0: Welcome to That Feels Like Home, a podcast by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, reaching you from Middlesex University in London. I'm Ana Valleza and I'm hosting this third series to look afresh at what home is, and what it means. Previously we've looked at home from a wide range of perspectives, including in series two, share experiences of home during the pandemic. This season, will be in conversation with academics and activists who have moved beyond traditional ideas of home as a place of safety, privacy, and care. Each episode will propose alternative readings of home from its engagements with histories of empire, the politics of micro-living under neoliberalism, home as a queer space, or the changing meanings of home for people who cross borders. As always, we draw inspiration from our collections and the stories missing in them to rethink the past through the lens of the present. In this episode, we'll be thinking about how homes and spaces in the home are created and disrupted through transnational mobility and migration. We tend to think of domestic space as fixed in one place, but where is home? For many people, home happens across varied geographies. It's mobile and unstable. In this episode, we're going to talk about the relationship between home and migration, and particularly, we'll be looking at the context of transnational mobility in London. And joining us to talk about this are Dr. Annabel Wilkins and Dr. Olivia Sheringham, both geographers who have collaborated with the Museum of the Home on the Stay Home Stories project that we'll talk about today. It's really great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Yeah, thank you Anna, it's great to be here and discussing this with you both.
0: And just to introduce you before we jump in, Dr Annabel Wilkins is a social and cultural geographer with interest in home, migration and belonging. She is currently a postdoctoral researcher at Queen Mary University of London and at Kingston University London. Annabel is the author of Migration, Work and Homemaking in the City, Dwelling and Belonging Among Vietnamese Communities in London, which was published by Routledge in 2019. Dr. Olivia Sheringham is a lecturer in social and cultural geography at Birkbeck University of London. Her research interests span home, migration and belonging in urban context, cultural diversity and geographies of encounter, religion and migration and creative and collaborative practice. And she has published widely on these themes, including in a recent co-authored article, The Living of Time, Temporalities of Home and the City. So, a very rich set of topics, and I think we're going to struggle to get through all of them today. But I wanted to start with the first and sort of broad initial question, which is around your own motivations for starting to research these issues of home migration in the city. You both live in London, it's a super diverse city.
1: So, what brought you to this? I moved to London actually when I started my PhD, and I originally came from a quite rural coastal town in the southwest of England. So, it was a real completely different experience for me moving to London and I think even just being here experiencing what it's like to live alongside and as part of so many different communities and it was a really important part of my research to actually experience being in this place and learn about all the different histories of migration the different reasons people have arrived and settled in the city and are still continuing to do so and the kinds of challenges that they faced um, along the way so i think it's given me a real sense of that rich history of migration and i've definitely brought that into my work
2: like annabelle i've come from a place that is much less urban and much less diverse So living in London and sort of living alongside such diversity has always been something that's motivated and inspired me. But my interest in home particularly stems from an interest more in migration and people's migrants relationships. I did my PhD research was working with Brazilian migrants and very much interested in people's connections with homes back in Brazil. And these ideas of connections with multiple homes, these transnational connections. And from that, I became interested more about questions of belonging. And it was only sort of later that I started thinking about the work that we're going to talk about today of thinking about a more expanded idea of home and how that very much relates to this idea of belonging or not belonging in the city.
0: And I wanted to follow up from that on this expanded sense of home and start with this question, well, where is home? If I look at the collections at Moda, the the museum, there is all these manuals from the 19th century and in the early 20th century that talk very much about that private world of the home, often constructed as women's natural domain. And it's very much separated from what's outside of the home. But your research is pointing at a different set of perspectives a sort of relationship between home and the city. Home isn't just that domestic space. It's also something that can happen in public space it's that expanded sense of home
1: yeah i think absolutely just definitely building from what you say anna that well i would start from the point of saying that home is a multiple experience an entity something that can be experienced in different places so of course can be within the dwelling within the interior as geographers we also think about how those dwellings are connected across multiple different spaces and places And I particularly have been inspired by the work of Alison Blunt and other critical geographers of home who talk about home as multi scalar So can be found within the local neighbourhood, within the city, across transnational space. And of course, this is particularly important for people who've migrated, people who've been displaced and thinking about how they kind of remake or sometimes unmake the home and build a home in, in a new place. I also think about home in terms of practices and homemaking. Sociologist Paolo Bucagni talks about homemaking as an active process and within which a sense of security and familiarity and control are particularly important. And again, if we think about how some people who've migrated might experience this, there might be a kind of loss of autonomy. And another way of thinking about home is in terms of the emotional and embodied aspects, things like memory, identity and um, a space for family and, and people to sort of care for one another and so yeah I think there are these multiple different ways that we can look at home and how we experience it.
2: Yeah I think this is a really interesting question how scholarship unsettles some of these normative ideas as home of a site of security, home as associated with these kind of positive ideals of safety security and critical and feminist scholars have emphasised the need to look beyond these assumptions of home as a haven or as a place of refuge, and actually demonstrating that this may experience just a site of violence or insecurity, as Annabelle has said. Catherine Brickle talks about home unmaking and draws attention to how home can be a site of fear for many people. So we might think about context of domestic abuse, violence, but also thinking about how the structures of the state, so structures of state violence, infiltrate the home. And again, this idea of how state policy shape people's domestic lives and then work on refugees and asylum seekers. And certainly this has come out in my research in terms of thinking about home for refugees and asylum seekers, people whose lives are in limbo. So spatial and temporal limbo and this constant waiting for a letter from the Home Office, waiting to be displaced. This uncertainty that shape and constrain people's domestic lives in multiple ways. We can't think about home without thinking about how it's deeply tied with these questions of race, class, gender And the kind of colonial imperial power relations and how these play out. But also, I think, as Annabel says, relating to practices of homemaking, it's also important to think about migrants not as victims of these forces and thinking about questions of agency and resistance, which we might touch on again later.
0: I think that lays the
2: groundwork in a
0: great way. It leads me to another question, which is how far do you think the meanings of home and family life are still dominated by domestic experiences that are associated with white British households? You both mentioned the importance of thinking about race, thinking about gender. And your work looks at that. How are your
2: projects shifting the terms in which we can talk about home? I think this question is really interesting in terms of thinking about how migration and the experiences of migrants shift and unsettle migrants, sort of very broadly thought about how these shift and unsettle our ideas of what home means beyond these sort of normative ideals of the white household. As we've touched on, urban scholars have drawn attention to the role of migrants in city making. So, the ways in which migrants in cities shape the kind of spaces of the city and carve out these spaces of belonging and the impact this has on the urban landscape. On the one hand, these migrants that are very much fundamental to our cities and to us, the city making alongside being excluded and excluded from these processes of urban change. But I think this idea of migrants and city making can be extended to these discussions around homemaking and understandings of home and the kind of contradictory processes that underpin it. So home, as we've talked about, encompassing feelings and imaginaries across temporal and spatial scales. Home is a site of fear, potentially, and uncertainty. But also, as I touched on earlier, this idea of home as a site of resistance and creativity and resilience that go into these practices of migrant homemaking. And this sort of came out in my own research on Brazilian migrants in London, these real practices of how to make home multiple homes, how to make home across borders, how to make home both within domestic spaces or not within other community spaces in the city, and also in my recent work with refugees and asylum seekers in London. So thinking about this active role of migrants in the making of home.
1: I think my work builds on the work of the scholars that we've been discussing in terms of homemaking and city making and not sort of separating out home and mobility, but looking at them as intertwined and also not assuming that home is the place or the dwelling is the place where people might feel that sense of belonging. And in my PhD research, I was exploring these kinds of questions with Vietnamese people and communities in East London, and they'd arrived in London for very diverse reasons. So some people who'd arrived as refugees in the 1970s and 80s and other people who'd arrived much more recently, So I was looking at how they experienced home, but also these connections between home and work, home in the city, and how people's everyday experiences of the city really shaped what they thought of as home. And I think this is how perhaps we can challenge some of these normative assumptions that are often coming from Global North academia, Western academia. It's really important to think about how literally how the idea of home is translated in, in different languages and different cultures. So I was learning about the meanings of home in the Vietnamese language and Vietnamese culture and this idea of the original homeland or the ancestral homeland that was very important to some people and could be quite different from the home that they experience in the present but was a really important part of their own sense of perhaps a longer term home or a more profound sense of home where their family and roots were as well as where they were right now.
0: You're listening to That Feels Like Home, a podcast from the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture from Middlesex University. I'm Ana Baeza, and in this episode I'm talking to geographers Annabelle Wilkins and Olivia Sheringham about home mobility and migration. In the next section, we discuss what home might mean for different people. It can be a space of autonomy, but also one of unsafety and oppression. That's really interesting. I wanted to touch more on one thing that you've both said, which is, on the one hand, moving beyond the idea of home as a place of safety and starting to understand how it can be a place of oppression. But then there's that other dimension that you brought up, Olivia, about home as a site of resilience, which I think is also something that has come up in some of the literature, particularly from feminists of colour who have talked about the home as it might function as a space of autonomy from racial domination. So I wonder how these perspectives kind of collide in your work in thinking about migration and home.
1: Yeah, I think I can start on this. And I think, again, it really speaks to the ambivalence of home and also the importance of considering what home means for different people, how this intersects with their wider experiences, whether that's displacement or other forms of oppression and subjugation. And I've been really inspired by Bell Hook's work and she talks about the home place uh, which she defines as a space through which black women have historically survived and resisted these different forms of oppression, particularly white supremacy, white power and control, and this is in the context particularly of the US and slavery and the legacies of this, but also the kind of wider dominance of white supremacy within social and cultural and economic life. So, within this home was a kind of site of sanctuary and resistance from these kinds of forms of dominance. And she goes on to say that it was only in that home place that was created and kept by Black women that they had the opportunity to grow and develop, and to quote her, to nurture our spirits. And I think this is really interesting to reflect on in the context of migration, and particularly we could apply this in the context of the hostile environment in the UK. But it makes me wonder to what extent the home can be a particularly safe place and a place of autonomy if there is still a danger of state intervention into the home. So things like evictions, deportations, we really see this aspect of intervention in every aspect of life, including the domestic space. So I think this just shows that it's really important to look at it intersectionally.
2: These assumptions around home as experienced in a particular way that we need to unsettle. I really like Azizat Johnson's work on black Muslim women and home. She talks about clothing practices and reflects on these ideas of comfort and discomfort within the home, as well as beyond the domestic space, but particularly thinking about home in this broader sense. But for her, both comfort and the home need to be thought of as negotiated and dynamic and related to the construction of identity and feelings of belonging, as well as their opposites. So these feelings of home autonomy comfort that we've been talking about as fluid and contextual how it's shaped by these legacies of imperialism colonialism slavery as well as these contemporary forms of coloniality
0: you've both talked about this infiltration of the state in the home when we talk about the experience of migrants and refugees that's often also joined by condition of precarity for instance having restricted access to affordable housing or restricted access
1: to funds could you talk a bit more about this this came up in my PhD research, particularly in in very different ways, depending on the circumstances of people's arrival. So it was very clear for people who arrived as refugees in the 1970s that they'd been forcibly displaced from their homes in Vietnam due to the violence and conflict there. And then once they'd finally been resettled in the UK, they'd often along the way spent time in, in refugee camps in Hong Kong and other places. But Once they arrived in the UK, they often had to wait months in so-called reception centres, which were often in former military barracks. And then they were dispersed around the country, which is something that's still done with asylum seekers in the UK in the current context. And so this kind of process of dispersal really impacted on the way that they could form a community, uh, find support. And it was really exacerbating the trauma that they'd often experienced. So many of them actually moved again in the 1980s and 90s, to form communities in London and other major cities. And that was kind of part of this process of seeking support, seeking solidarity. Migrants who've arrived more recently are being impacted by the UK's increasingly restrictive immigration policies, including, as you mentioned, the no recourse to public funds. Several people that I'd met who wanted to stay in the UK were finding that it was increasingly difficult because the UK had abolished the post-study work visa at the time, so they didn't really have any sense of certainty as to how long they could stay. So things like having very transient housing, rented housing, not being able to decorate or furnish the home in the way that you would ideally want to, but also this broader sense of precarity of not knowing where you can live or where you can establish a longer-term home.
0: I want to link that to just
1: another question,
0: which is about the public portrayal of those temporary accommodation or housing states, which in the media more often than not tend to be presented as unhomely, as alienating and seen to be lacking security, community belonging. How
2: do you see these media representations? I think that's a really important question, the relationship between these media representations and then how the kind of policies that then become related to that. And I think this sort of tendency comes out in this to separate the physical dwelling with experiences and emotions and practices of home. So in the context of housing estates, as you mentioned, particularly in the UK context, these have been widely portrayed as unhomely, as you say. And then this notion that emerged of sink estates, and I think this was a speech that was made by Tony Blair at the Aylesbury Estate in South London in the 90s, but then this became, and it's still used as this kind of framework to justify social housing policies that marginalise and displace people. How the power of this rhetoric has been to associate these forms of housing as associated with decay, become used to justify these acts of dehumanising and marginalising people that live in them, as somehow kind of apart from society. And I think this is where sort of scholars of home remind us of thinking about these dwellings through the lens of home and all that that implies. Home is relational. Home is about emotions, memories, community. We need to think about this through a broader understanding of home, a more complex and nuanced understanding that sort of challenges the simplistic and damaging narratives of the media. And just to mention this brilliant film by Andrea Luca Zimmerman about the Haggerston estate in Hackney. The film's called Estate, a Reverie, and it kind of tells multiple stories of the estate and its residents in the seven-year period in between the decision to pull it down, when this was announced, and then when residents were finally rehoused. And the film just provides this really powerful counter to some of these narratives surrounding sink estates and the people that dwell in them. It's a kind of reverie, sort of dreamlike portrayal that captures these multiple layers that we've talked about, temporally and spatially, that encompass the home, but also the injustices of the housing system alongside processes of structural racism and austerity, but without painting the people as victims.
0: We've been talking about home as being ambivalent, how it can be both reflective of social injustices around access to housing, but also a space of protection. Now we're going to talk about domestic possessions. How do these create a sense of home? We've talked about home as it spills outside of domestic space, but i actually like to go to the interior of home as a site for the creation of a sense of belonging. You've both talked about the power of objects in forming archives of memories and desires. Could you speak a bit about this?
1: Yeah, so there's, I mean, so much really interesting and rich literature that is considering the importance of domestic possessions in context of mobility and displacements and how those contribute to homemaking everything from kind of photographs, souvenirs, paintings, foods and practices of cooking, amongst many other examples. And again, speaking to the work of our colleague Kathy Barrell, who looks at how migrants from Poland and Zimbabwe, who are in the UK, sustain these material and tangible links and also emotional links across borders through sending and receiving parcels, clothing, furniture, and other items, and she really highlights the practices of care and effort that are involved in maintaining these domestic connections. I draw on some of these ideas, these kinds of the power of objects and how they're reinterpreted and reconfigured in context of migration throughout my own research. And particular objects were very important in my work with participants in terms of connecting them with their past homes in Vietnam and their memories of homes, particularly Homes that they'd had to leave in, in difficult and traumatic circumstances. But it was particularly challenging for people who'd arrived as refugees to actually bring many physical objects with them. So that was one of the first things that a participant said to me that we could only bring very tiny photographs, you know, small Polaroid pictures that they later had enlarged and put on the walls of their homes. But The kinds of possessions that they could bring were completely priceless to them. They couldn't really bring very much at all. And so later, when it was possible to travel or to have objects sent from Vietnam, these were hugely important for those memories. Several people that I met had objects that were brought on return visits to Vietnam, pictures depicting somewhat kind of idealised images of rural Vietnam, such as village scenes. And these objects are not just about reconstructing a past home but must be thought of in terms of how they're being used, um, navigated, reinterpreted in the context of London and those new homes that people are are making. For younger participants, their parents would often send domestic and other objects to their homes in London, such as carpets, bedding, food, even medicines. And this was a really important part of maintaining those family relationships, the parent-child relationship, because many of the people I met were still students in London, and enabling that cross-border sense of home. Religious and spiritual objects were hugely important for several people that I spoke to, um, including um, the materiality and material culture of altars and shrines to deities and ancestors,
2: I suppose just to build on that, my right, domestic objects that have been important in my research with migrants as well. And, and like Annabelle, one of the things that I've been interested in or that's emerged is the ways in which religion and spirituality has been experienced and practiced in people's home spaces. And We've written a chapter together on this in a book called Spaces of Spirituality, in which we look at Annabelle's work with Vietnamese migrants. So I talk in my research of the ways in which these objects, so home shrines, candles, photographs, kind of have this spiritual dimension and become really important for creating and sustaining these ties with back home, as well as creating a sense of belonging in the context of London, so both creating these transnational ties alongside. So again that's thinking about the relationship between the mobile and the city and the mobility and belonging. A lot of people talked about portable religious objects, so Amulets or images of saints that people carried to remind them or give them a sense of solace or comfort in often quite unwelcoming contexts of the city, or even sort of religious apps on people's phones. Annabel, you've alluded
0: to the link to memories and how that links to the present but also to the future. How do you think this remaking of the home or using of objects is also a way of shaping some kind of future? How do you see that overlapping of past, present, future in that one space?
2: Yeah, I think that's really important to think not just about spatial scales, but also about temporal scales and the overlapping, as you say, of the sort of past, present and future. People talk about homes left behind and both the kind of terms of physical dwellings, but also in terms of families and emotional ties thinking back to the past, also reminds us about history and the colonial legacies that underpin experiences of home for many people. So I think as migration scholars, this is something that we sort of have a responsibility to really foreground. But as you say, Anna, thinking about future homes is also important, as well as current homes. And one way that this has come up in my research, and in a lot of the wider literature around migration and home, is about homes that migrants build using money, so these kind of remittances, so sending money back home or back to countries of origin, potentially, to then build a, often it's referred to as a remittance home, so built in a country to then return to someday. And these are often talked about in relation to home, and they're often left empty for a long period of time and and often may never be returned to. What sometimes doesn't come up enough is the sort of overlapping of the present and the future and the past. (laughs) So it's not that this future is something, this future home or this remittance home or these desires for a home are necessarily not connected with the experience of home in the present. So whether or not the home is going to be inhabited doesn't detract from the fact that it's very much part of that making of home in the present. We can also talk about temporalities of home and mobility over the longer
1: chronology, so over the life course and Mega Amrith has done a lot of work on this. So, in terms of aging and migration and how migrants' relationships with home change, not only just because of the passage of time, but because of significant family events such as births, marriages, deaths. And in her interviews, I think it shows that, you know, migrants who may once have planned to return to their original home or country of departure, the various things that happen along the way in life that mean that those plans may get derailed or put on hold indefinitely. And I think that really speaks to what you were saying, Olivia, about these different forms of waiting and how those are really carried through everyday life. I'm speaking with Annabel
0: Wilkins and Olivia Sheringham about the ways our homes change over the life course. In the next part of our discussion, we focused on how the pandemic has affected our sense of home and the Stay Home project that Annabelle and Olivia are both working on in collaboration with the Museum of the Home. I wanted to talk about dwelling during the pandemic and how that's impacted on people's experiences on home. You're looking at Stay Home Stories, which is in collaboration with the University of Queen Mary and the Museum of the Home. You're exploring how people's sense of home has been affected by the pandemic and I'd like to hear more about what you're finding out how people have been negotiating The relationship with that domestic space could you talk about the project?
1: Sure so this is a UKRI funded project part of the rapid response to Covid-19 fund led by Professor Alison Blunt and involving quite a large team of of colleagues at the RGS, Royal Geographical Society, Museum of the Home, the University of Liverpool, Birkbeck and Queen Mary and National Museums Liverpool, And the aims of the project are really to document and analyse how home has been experienced, represented and imagined during and after the three UK national lockdowns. Part of the project is to extend creative and curatorial uh, museum-based work that documents people's experiences of home during the pandemic, and also to understand how practices and meanings of home have changed during and after lockdown, particularly for people with histories of migration, other minoritised and marginalised groups, and people of faith and also children and young people. And there's one strand that's looking at how this directive to stay home has been represented in both political and media coverage. And we're also working with the Museum of the Home on their rapid response collection, which was asking people to share their experiences of home during the pandemic. And most of those submissions were during the first lockdown. So we've actually been doing follow up interviews with some of those contributors to find out more about how their experience of home has changed over that longer period. And then the second strand is called Practising Home, which we're both working on and We're looking really at these kinds of relationships and tensions between home and mobility or immobility. So thinking about the unequal and uneven capacities of people to stay home, depending on their work, their housing, the risks of doing so for many people and the impact of social distancing, particularly for people who are living in shared or temporary or precarious housing.
2: Yeah, I think I suppose a sort of key motivation for being involved in this project is sort of challenging and really exposing these multiple stories of home in the pandemic and this stay home directive and all the kind of normative assumptions that it encompasses. And lots of those normative assumptions that we've talked about today as if home is a site of safety for everyone, as if home is a refuge, as if home is this kind of house with a garden and all these kinds of things that can be unsettled through thinking about these multiple different stories of home. This idea of stay home clearly means something very different when you're living in an overcrowded room, when you're living in a hostel, or as we've talked about, when you're constantly waiting.
0: And as part of the project, that second strand practicing home, I understand you'll be interviewing migrants and and refugees. You were just mentioning that, Annabel, what that instruction stay home has meant for different people and how you're also interested in looking how that resonates with other government initiatives to encourage or force migrants to go home. I'd like to hear more about this aspect of the project
1: and how you're going to approach these conversations. Yeah, so um, I've actually started by doing some interviews with practitioners and uh, staff members from organisations who support uh, refugees and people seeking asylum, people with no recourse to public funds and the ways that their kind of support has shifted. And one of the things that has come out sort of repeatedly is that when the first lockdown started, there was this sudden shock and you know organisations were responding as quickly as they could but this was particularly impacting on people who are perhaps not even in the asylum system or they may have had their initial application refused and so they rely on perhaps often informal forms of support so they may have been you know sofa surfing or having some shelter with a friend or, or relative but then when the lockdown started sometimes people felt that they couldn't keep providing that I mean, it wasn't safe to provide that, so they lost their temporary home in that way. And also people who had been housed in temporary accommodations such as hotels, which were used quite a lot to house people seeking asylum and also people experiencing homelessness. And one way, of course, we can see that that was a positive thing that they were being provided with housing. But actually, this often entailed a huge loss of autonomy and particularly for people seeking asylum, they didn't know when they might be moved or dispersed. They were often waiting months and months longer for any decision on their case. And I think that well, many of the interviews with community researchers have really drawn out the challenges faced by people from different minoritized groups and migration backgrounds in terms of trying to social distance or isolate and stay home when your home is precarious or transient or just not conducive to that kind of isolation. And I think a lot of the government guidance really overlooked how difficult that would be for people, whether or not that's because they have to go out to work or they are key workers or even people who worked sort of on the so-called front line were often worried about bringing the virus home to their families. So we can't really separate out this kind of Home and wider city or wider community, and the the really huge challenges that people have faced in different ways.
2: I think another thing that's really come out in our research is that this directive to stay home and all the assumptions surrounding it how can you stay home and stay safe in these overcrowded conditions, or if you do actually need to go out to work? But also, I think it overlooks the multi-scalarity of home and the wider networks of care that are so important to the sense of home for so many people. So, thinking about Religious spaces, thinking about visiting the Red Cross once a week, which people might do, taking part in language classes, community groups—all these things that are no longer available or that have shifted online. But then that opens up these questions of digital inequalities and uneven access to these forms of support. It's still early days, but I wondered if
0: you're thinking this research might, in the future, inform the policy. To address precisely the kind of inequalities that you're outlining or what sort of impact do you envision for the
1: project? So we are um, developing policy toolkits and reports um, based on the work that's going on in both London and Liverpool and obviously a very different kind of urban context and regional context there but particularly hope that it might support the work that these organisations are doing to support migrants and refugees and kind of perhaps recommendations or practices best practices that we can share of what organizations have already been doing but i think what's really important is that we really connect it with these underlying structural inequalities and there have already been organizations bringing reports out about the importance of housing and housing inequalities and how that's disproportionately affected particular communities uh, minoritized ethnic communities and others in london and elsewhere we're also going to be doing a toolkit for religious and interfaith organizations and leaders who've been supporting different faith practices and we're also just trying to bring these experiences and testimonies to as wide an audience as possible so we have a lot of content on our website the stay home stories website and we're also producing podcasts and films kind of involving participants and community researchers throughout as much as possible so yeah, trying to bring that to a wider audience beyond the kind of academic papers that we'll be publishing.
2: Yeah, I suppose Annabelle's kind of outlined the main impacts that we see, but I suppose what's important to sort of really draw attention to how the intersections, how COVID is so deeply intertwined with these wider structures, so how it relates to austerity, the hostile environment, the recent Immigration acts, and Brexit and how we cannot see that it is kind of Separate. So a lot of our findings in a pandemic and potentially post-pandemic context are very relevant to thinking about the futures in relation to these wider questions of marginalisation. You're listening to That Feels Like
0: Home, a podcast from the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, reaching you from Middlesex University. In the final part of this discussion, we move on to thinking about how ideas of home and the nation have been mobilised and to what effects. As we've said, London is a super diverse city and this might serve as a foil to a more nationalist focus, but there is still a way in which the home and the domestic are often used to mobilise also an idea of the nation as a homeland. So there's a wider sense in which home is implicated in the national and in the transnational. How does this play out? in your work and in the context that you're looking at.
1: This relates really closely to the other project that I'm working on at the moment, which is called Mahomi or Making at Home, funded by Nordforsk. And this is a UK-Nordic collaboration across the UK and with colleagues in Denmark and Sweden. And we're looking at migrant homemaking and also the politics of integration, and particularly through immigration policies and integration policies in those three countries and how home materialises in those policies. So one key finding that we've been able to apply is this idea of domo-politics or home as a metaphor and the ways in which home is used to exclude particular groups who are deemed to be a threat or to not belong or to be outsiders. And we draw quite a lot on work by Walters, who coined this term Domipolitics, where the national home is defined as belonging to particular groups and they are sort of seen to belong naturally and others not to belong. And how immigration enforcement and kind of checks are used to filter different groups who are deemed to be desirable or undesirable and the kind of boundary drawing that goes on in these policies. And one of the UK examples that I've analysed for this is, you may have come across in 2013, other scholars have written about this as well, but there were these vans that were driven around the UK as part of an immigration enforcement exercise where they were basically instructing undocumented migrants to go home. And I look at how home is kind of being portrayed as the country of origin or elsewhere for so-called illegal migrants in this context and how It just cannot possibly be imagined that they might have built a home here in the UK and the kinds of ways in which this idea of home or settlement is reserved for particular groups who are deemed to be contributors to the economy or other kind of rhetoric around migration. I also look at the right to rent policy from the Immigration Acts of 2014 and 2016 and how this basically uses the idea of a rented home as a vehicle For settlement and therefore restricts it to particular groups of migrants who have the correct immigration status, and how landlords are used to basically check their immigration status and whether they have the right to rent or not, and how this impacts on whether migrants can establish a long term home here. So, I think that this idea of home in the more divisive and often political rhetoric around home is really important to bring in. And one way that we can do this is by looking at the policies themselves.
2: Yeah, I think all of this, this sort of questions of homeland and this fixation with the nation, again, as we sort of touched on today, really compels us to think about these questions of colonialism and the legacies in our contemporary cities and thinking about his relationship with home. Nadine el another Birkbeck colleague or a legal scholar at Birkbeck, she talks about Britain as a space of domestic colonialism. Yeah, thinking about these processes of racialisation and marginalisation, even within our kind of post-imperial, post-colonial Britain, how this kind of contemporary processes of coloniality and how they shape the domestic.
0: As well as talking about belonging, we really need to think a lot about this term home as a place where you might be exiled from or where your present isn't welcome or is not seen on equal terms, where you're treated as an outsider. So this term unbelonging, is that something that you're using to reflect in your work?
1: So I think here it's really important to discuss and amplify the work that is currently being done by particular diaspora heritage and migrant-led groups, particularly in London, amongst East and Southeast Asian communities. And I've been really inspired by the work of Moitran Tran and others who really kind of deconstruct the archive and who has access to the archives of their own migration stories and how that can tie in with this idea of belonging or not belonging and yeah, who has told these stories, who has been spoken about, and how people can actually be telling the stories that they want to tell in their own words. And also the uh, Remember and Resist Collective, who are of an East and Southeast Asian heritage in London, and they're really exploring the impact of borders and experiences of trafficking and racial injustice and the politics of solidarity and how that connects with other current movements around. Racialization and um, the politics of this, and yeah, I think that I'm constantly learning from the work of these groups to sort of really question what is meant by belonging, who belongs, and in what contexts. And I know that's not always something that's easy to explore. If you're asking people about home and where they belong, that's a very complex and you know sensitive question. So I think there are many different ways that we could approach that.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really important point for Annabelle to draw upon in terms of thinking about practices of resistance and really asking us to question some of these ideas around belonging that we have, again, and these assumptions. And thinking about this idea of the government narrative to stay home, which clearly jars with this hostile environment that is intent on creating for racialized communities. So saying that this isn't their home, that people don't belong here at the same time as telling people to stay home and stay safe.
0: I wanted to finish asking you a question about the future. You've talked to diverse groups of people and communities. You're looking at the experiences of home and how these have shifted during the pandemic. So far, where do you see the shifts, the continuities, the differences, the commonalities? It's a complex process we've discussed, but what are you seeing from
1: your research and what do you hope for the future? I think Part of what we're doing in the Stay Home Project is asking the people that we interview what they would change either about their home in the context of the pandemic or the kind of wider aspects of social life. And I think it's been a really huge learning experience to see what individuals are thinking about their own personal futures and and the idea of home and meanings of home and how they might shift. But I think also, as we've said throughout, drawing attention to the inequalities and uneven experiences of the pandemic and home and and the need to sort of challenge the assumptions around it. And yeah, I think in terms of home in the city, one thing that's come out is the different ways that people have engaged with their local neighbourhood and the wider city throughout lockdown and this expanded sense of home. And I think I was expecting that this would be felt as a kind of loss, perhaps a lack of the public spaces that they once been enjoying but I think people have often discovered new places you know depending on where they live in the city and how long they'd lived there but I think we can think about the possibilities for widening our understandings of home and outdoor space Um, but again looking at the inequalities of access to this so not everybody had access to outdoor space or green space so thinking about the future city and possibilities for what we want this to look like and who is welcome within this
2: Yeah, I think one of the key focuses of this project and also our sort of wider research in relation to migration home and the wider geographies of that. I think for me, it's about thinking about alternative narratives that challenge these deeply unequal and uneven and top down ways of positioning and marginalising people in relation to home. And I think it's foregrounding and exposing the injustices but also drawing attention to alternatives and possibilities for resistance and resisting these injustices. And in terms of hopes for the future, I guess the hope is through doing this, through exposing or drawing attention to these alternatives, to thinking about more just and equal futures, really drawing attention to a much more broad and intersectional ideas of home that can expose some of these possibilities.
0: Thank you so much, Annabelle and Olivia, for this really thought-provoking, interesting conversation that has expanded, I think, certainly my own and I'm sure also listeners' understandings of home. So it's been a pleasure to have you with us.
2: I just wanted to finish with a quote from Arundhati Roy, where she talks about what lies ahead, reimagining the world, only that. And I think that's quite an important quote for us to think about how this is what we need to do. We need to reimagine the world as a better one and a more just one
0: <laughs> I think that's a great note to end on. thank you
2: thank you so much Anna it's been really great to talk to you today and thank you for inviting us to be part of this podcast
1: yeah thank you Anna it's been a fantastic discussion and uh, it's been really yeah, expanded my own ideas about what we're looking at in these projects so I'm really grateful and look forward to the feedback from the listeners as well thank you again
0: Thank you for listening and special huge thanks to my guests for this episode, Annabelle Wilkins and Olivia Sheringham for joining us to talk about home as a mobile experience, as something relational and changing. In the rest of the series, we'll continue to assess traditional ideas of home and venture into other critical readings of home space. Don't miss our next episode with Mel Nowicki and Ella Harris, which will deal with the ways in which precarity and housing policies have challenged the possibilities for making home for many people. For more information about this episode, show notes, and reading lists, please visit our website, www.moda.mdx.ac.uk. You can also find a link to the survey in our show notes, and we'd love to hear from you, so please tell us what you think and add your comments on Instagram, at Moda Museum. If you enjoy the podcast, please also leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. We're also keen to expand the museum collections around home, so if you'd like to know more, please get in touch with us via email moda at mdx.ac.uk. I'm Anna Baitarvith, and this podcast is brought to you by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, Middlesex University. We'll be back again soon. Stay tuned.